The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. I think that this romantic idea that the suffering is what allows art to bloom loses sight of how much is lost when people are suffering from a debilitating depression and can't even shower or get dressed, let alone create some kind of masterpiece. This week on Science for the People, we'll be talking to a psychiatrist about her experiences with patients in crisis and the ethics around treating people living with mental illness. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm joined by Dr. Christine Montross, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She's also a staff psychiatrist at Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. She completed medical school and residency training at Brown University, where she received the Isaac Ray Award in Psychiatry and the Martin B. Keller Outstanding Brown Psychiatry Resident Award. And she's also been named a 2010 McCall Johnson Fellow in Poetry and the winner of the 2009 Eugene and Marilyn Glick Emerging Indiana Authors Award. She's here to talk about her book, Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. Thanks for being here, Christine. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Now, I'm going to be momentarily effusive. Uh, I have to start out by saying that I have wanted to read a book like this for a long time. Huh. We usually deal with as much empirical data as we can. Uh, on the show, but I've always wanted to know how a psychiatrist deals with the inherent uncertainty of their field. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So why is psychiatry so filled with uncertainty? I think the brain remains a mysterious organ for us. Uh, we have really sussed out many of the mysteries of the rest of the body. We know very well the heart and how it operates. We have learned so much more about the liver and the kidneys, and we know a great deal about our blood. Um, but there is this very murky territory that remains in the brain. And, and I think that's both exciting. We see these incredible advances taking place and um, these discoveries being made. It's also quite daunting. And I think that the tools that we have to evaluate the brain are very different than the tools we have to evaluate the rest of the body. Certainly we can take an MRI image or a CT scan of the brain and see what the brain looks like. But unlike so many other of our organs, what the brain looks like does not really tell us in every case how the brain is functioning. So I think that uh, for psychiatrists, we're so often making diagnoses and treatment plans based purely on symptoms, not so much about uh, an image on a screen or the result of a blood test or a lab test. And that's really different from other fields of medicine. Well, now, diagnosing an, an illness is difficult, but, but even if you do diagnose it accurately, the appropriate treatment isn't necessarily clear-cut either. That's right. And, and that's true uh, in many fields of medicine. I do think that psychiatry has a reputation of being um, less um, directive and uh, kind of algorithmic than other forms of medicine. But in truth, 
any of us who have had our own physical illnesses or have accompanied family members through uh, illnesses have too often had the experience where we might meet with two or more doctors and even experts in the field may have very different opinions about how to treat someone's cancer, for example. So I think one of the things that is is difficult as a patient, which we all are at some point, is that medicine itself doesn't always have the the certainty and the clarity that we would wish. But definitely that's true in psychiatry as well. Many of the medications that we have in other realms of medicine, uh, we, we know will work, we know will work very quickly. The brain resists that uh, that kind of tit for tat response that one body may have, for example, to a, uh, a medicine for blood pressure. So people respond differently to antidepressants. People respond differently to mood stabilizers, um, and that does add an element of complexity to the practice of psychiatry. Well, now even with all the research that has been done in the field, are there times when you feel like you're just taking a shot in the dark? Uh, I rarely feel like I'm taking a shot in the dark. I often feel like there are a couple of possibilities for what's going on. Um, I do think, you know, psychiatrists are trained as physicians. We go to medical school, we do residency training. So I, I feel like I have a, a very solid um, background in the brain sciences. And I feel like I've seen a lot of the patterns that emerge in people when they are afflicted with psychiatric illness. So um, I always feel as though I have a framework and I have a general sense of um, what people are dealing with. But many times, uh, you know, if someone has psychotic symptoms, for example, where they are experiencing a break with reality, you know, th there are many possibilities of what might cause that. That could be um, in response to drug use. It could be um, a primary psychotic illness like schizophrenia. It could be a complication of uh, severe depression or anxiety or bipolar illness. Um, and so there are many different um, possible etiologies that can give rise to some of the psychiatric symptoms that we see. So um, rather than a shot in the dark, I more often think of it as um, trying to get to the bottom of what I see and trying to consider all the possibilities that are, uh, are out there. Well, there are some illnesses that are surrounded with more uncertainty than others. Uh, you've written about a, a number of cases where people are in profound crisis. So how would you define profound crisis as opposed to regular crisis, I suppose? I think that's a, uh, that's a subjective question. As, as we all experience, there are people who um, are, are afflicted differently by the events that come into our lives. So some people are very thrown off by things that other people feel are minor. Um, but, but I think that profound crisis, in my mind, is the kind of thing that really throws one's life entirely off the rails. So um, in my own psychiatric practice, I work now in an inpatient hospital uh, on two units uh, that are versions of, they, they're psychiatric intensive care units, essentially. So these are the patients who are the most psychiatrically ill. They're hospitalized. They're actively trying to kill themselves or hurt other people, or they are so profoundly psychotic or debilitated that they really are not able in this moment to exist uh, outside of the hospital. So this is a period of time where we're keeping people safe in the hospital and we're trying to stabilize 
them so that they can then go leave the hospital and not be in danger. To me, that, that element of danger, um, whether it's active danger, like trying to hurt oneself or hurt someone else, or just not being able to care for oneself in the world. You know, I have patients who are so paranoid that they are not eating or drinking because they believe that the food or water is poisoned or people who um, are allowing their houses not to be cared for to such a degree that their heat is off or, you know, things that endanger themselves. So for me, the barometers of profound crisis is probably one where you really begin to worry about people and their well-being. Now, why did you choose the the specific cases for the book that you chose? These, these were the cases that really gnawed at me when I went home and sometimes stayed with me for weeks or even months after I saw these, these people. Um, and, and there are often times that I think about many of my patients, but occasionally there are patients like the ones that I wrote about where I just can't quite feel settled about the interaction, or I can't quite feel certain that um, my diagnosis was correct, or the course of action that I took was correct, or I find that I'm just wondering about them and wondering how they are and how they're doing and whether the work we did together um, was healing and productive work. So these were cases that I felt were very complex and that didn't have clear answers. So part of that was it made them very interesting to write about, uh, I think, to help reveal to readers the vastness of the territory of the mind and the interesting capacity it has to derail. But it also was a way for me to think very, very deeply about these cases. You know, uh, in medicine, there's an increasing trend, particularly in the United States where I practice, for physicians to have less and less time in their patient encounters. Those are financial pressures and policy pressures, but it means that we don't have these long stretches of time with our patients that we used to historically. So writing about these cases really gave me an opportunity to dive into and study um, and research the conditions with which my patients were struggling. Can we start with Lauren's case? Can you tell us about her? Sure. So Lauren was a is a young woman who is very well known to our medical community um, here. And and I, I should say first that all of these names are pseudonyms. And um, unfortunately, there are many patients whose stories are similar to hers, both here in Rhode Island and elsewhere. But she's a young woman who habitually um, ingests foreign objects in times of crisis. So we think of this as a kind of self-injurious behavior. There are some people who cut themselves or burn themselves on purpose when they are in periods of distress. And and her, um, her kind of self-soothing mechanism when she had something very upsetting was to swallow, uh, swallow objects. And sometimes this posed a real danger to her and to her well-being. So these are very difficult patients to treat um, and very, very frustrating for the clinicians who treat them. I think one of the things in medicine is that we all enter into the profession uh, with a sincere desire to help people. Um, And when the patient seems to be working against that goal, seems to be trying to harm themselves as you are trying to heal them, it can be very, very frustrating for a physician. So it was an interesting case to write about, both because of the 
kind of um, confusing and upsetting nature of her symptoms and also just to look at what happened in those of us who were supposed to be caring for her and instead became quite angry with her and, and angry with each other in the midst of the process. Now, why might someone self-harm in that way? Boy, that's a good and deep question. Um, there's lots and lots of research uh, about self-harm in general. And I, and it's difficult to ascertain one answer about self-injury, but, uh, generally speaking, and again, this isn't true for everyone, but generally speaking, there is a component of, um, what we call dissociation, which occurs. So people in moments of distress or trauma, um, may, feel kind of numb and removed. And people who self-injure describe the act of harming oneself as a way of sort of um, returning to feeling or um, uh, awakening that sense of, of feeling, returning to emotion, making the pain real. So it's sort of a, an attempt to break this disconcerting, upsetting feeling of being kind of removed and dissociated from what's going on. Um, that's not true for everyone, but it does seem to be uh, a consistent marker that we find in a lot of, of people who exhibit self-injurious behavior. Why someone chooses to um, have this particular form of self-injury is a question that we don't know the answer to. Um, the nonfiction writer, Mary Capello, who's a friend of mine, is a English professor at the University of Rhode Island, and she wrote a really beautiful book called Swallow, which um, she and I were working on these, these my, I was working on this chapter at the same time that she was working on this book, and we had some very wacky lunch conversations in the most wonderful way, but she, um, she, her book is based on, uh, it is a nonfiction exploration of the life of Chevalier Jackson, who it was the physician who invented the bronchoscope. So he's the guy that made it possible to look down the throats of people and see what's there. Because of that, he was one of the first people who began to extract foreign objects or foreign bodies when people had inhaled them or swallowed them either accidentally or on purpose. So it was very interesting talking with Mary because my sense was this was very much grounded in the territory of self-injury and that people would do this intentionally to put themselves at risk and harm themselves. Mary opened up to me a much more kind of literary analytic view where she began talking about the pleasures that we all have in putting something in our mouths, you know, putting the cap of a pen in our mouth or um, putting a smooth pebble in your mouth and kind of feeling how it feels or the various intimate acts that involve our mouths. So I think there's, I think there's more to the story. I think it's an evocative, uh, it's, it's evocative territory, the mouth. And, and I do think for Lauren, for example, um, you know, she would do these things and then she would bring herself to the hospital. And I think in some ways that was a way of, of seeking care, seeking support and nurturing. But I don't know that you can say that about everyone. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Dr. Christine Montross, author of Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. Well, one of the problems with, with Lauren's situation and others in the book is around hospitalization. Um, now, Lauren brought herself to the hospital, uh, but that is often not the case. It's friends or family that force the issue, correct? 
Gosh, there's a whole, there's really a whole mix of situations that arise. Um, uh, so p- people are either admitted to the hospital voluntarily or occasionally they can be admitted against their will. Um, that really returns to um, that concept of profound crisis that I was was talking with you about. And and for us in, in America, there have actually been Supreme Court decisions that have really carefully defined uh, the circumstances which must be met in order for someone to be hospitalized against his or her will. And, and you can imagine taking away someone's autonomy, um, and taking away their civil liberties and, and, um, hospitalizing them without that being their own intention or decision. It's a, it's a grave decision to make. So, um, so, for us, the stipulation, and it varies slightly from state to state, but the stipulation is there must be imminent risk to self, imminent risk to others, or a grave disability um, that is preventing someone from being safe outside of the hospital. So it really, hospitalizing someone against their will really hinges on being able to prove that you believe that they would be uh, imminently at risk to themselves or others were they not hospitalized. So we do see those cases where friends or family members become very, very concerned and bring someone to the hospital. That being said, the majority of our patients um, come voluntarily, and that certainly is the larger number of the patients that I treat. Can you talk about Colin? Yeah, so the chapter that I wrote about Colin, uh, Colin is one of those, um, you know, another of those sort of gray areas. Colin was a, a recent college graduate who, from a prestigious liberal arts college who came in to the hospital brought in by his girlfriend. Um, and she was worried because he had begun exhibiting some bizarre behavior. He was walking backwards. He was walking in circles before picking up objects. He was urinating in a Coke bottle. Um, and some of the statements that he made were very bizarre. He himself felt as though he was in a very spiritual state. And so one of the things that really compelled me to write about his uh, treatment was that I think that that um, there are legitimate questions raised in psychiatric care about uh, why would we treat someone who is elated? Why would we treat someone who is experiencing um, profound joy? And and these are conditions that we frequently see, for example, in a manic episode of bipolar disorder, that people feel on top of the world, they can go days and days without sleeping, they have boundless energy. Um, and, and from an outside perspective, it can seem um, alluring and actually sort of exciting and positive and, and people may experience it that way as well. I have also seen the really, really devastating consequences that can accompany those periods of mania or periods of psychosis when people feel hyper-connected to the universe or hyper-connected to God. Um, one of the examples that I write about in Colin's chapter is a young university student I treated who felt um, was, was experiencing this kind of um, 
these kinds of manic symptoms and ended up um, taking a student project that was uh, researching homelessness and and eventually she was staying out all night sleeping on the streets with homeless people she had numerous sexual encounters that she felt were ways of getting very close to the people that she was working with she got a bunch of tattoos um, and these were really devastating consequences for her and for her family that once her mood equilibrated she was really really horrified and saddened by so um, there is this this allure and this evocative nature to um, to what uh, Oliver Sacks and George Eliot have called um, euphoric hyperstates or ominous um, ominous extravagance. These these kind of states of too much happiness. Um, so there is this dark underbelly. At the same time, you know, psychiatry has an inglorious past and we've often treated people who may not have required treatment. So writing about Colin allowed me to really weigh when do we need to intervene because we believe that someone's in a dangerous situation that may quickly turn. And when are we at the risk of being in the role that psychiatry has historically had of medicating difference or, um, you know, might we be damping out divinity? These these are really interesting, compelling questions that I think are a part of modern day psychiatric care. So how difficult a call is that to make, uh, to hospitalize someone in that condition? Um, again, we, we would never hospitalize someone unless they either sought that hospitalization or if they were in real danger. If there's real danger, it's honestly not that big of a call, you know, not that difficult a call to make. Um, and I think then if it's, if it's not something that you're seeking to do against someone's will, then it's really a conversation with, with the person who's experiencing it. Um, but I think if you're, if you have someone who feels very, very content and they feel, um, very much like they're just living this really exciting life and they don't meet criteria for involuntary hospitalization, that can be a real challenge for family members. If you have a, a son or a daughter or a spouse who is spending enormous amounts of money, as people who are manic sometimes do, um, uh, being hypersexual, um, get, uh, staying out all night, driving too fast, you know, these are things that might not meet the criteria for involuntary hospitalization, and yet they can have devastating consequences for a family, even as the patient may not recognize that in the state of mind that they're in. So those are very difficult situations for families family members. Mentioned repeatedly the diagnosis can be difficult, but moreover, misdiagnosis can be dangerous, right? Yeah, the, the chapter that I, I wrote a chapter um, where I really tried to highlight that diagnosis has consequences. And, and again, you know, returning to other forms of medicine, we know that to be true. We know that um, if you have a diagnosis of diabetes, you want to be darn sure that you actually have diabetes before you start taking medication to lower your blood sugar. Um, in, in psychiatry, we have that same, that same responsibility of really diagnosing with accuracy what people are going through. The chapter uh, that I wrote um, to highlight this topic is, uh, was one about a mother who was having thoughts of harming her young son. And I really had to determine 
whether these thoughts that were coming into her mind were hallucinations, was she having having psychotic commands to harm her child? Or were these obsessive, anxious thoughts that she was so afraid she might harm her child that she sort of couldn't shake the thought that she would? And the reason that this example seemed to me to highlight so beautifully the implications of diagnosis was that diagnosis really guides uh, a course of treatment. If this woman was having command hallucinations to harm her child, the treatment would absolutely be to keep her away from her baby, to make sure that the baby was in a safe place and that she was in a safe place so that she wasn't apt to do something tragic um, as a result of these psychotic symptoms. If, however, she was having anxious, obsessive thoughts, the treatment would actually be for her to spend more time with her baby, for her to be reassured that, look, she could be with her child, she could hold her child, she could be alone with her child, and she would not harm him. She would be able to have these loving interactions with him. But as a clinician, um, you know, either of those treatment plans has really egregious consequences if you get it wrong. If I thought that she were psychotic and prevented her from being with her child and I was wrong, then I would be unfairly keeping a baby from his mother, keeping the mother from her child and exacerbating the mother's anxious worry that she was not able to care for him. Conversely, if she were truly psychotic and I prescribed a course of action where she was alone with her baby because I thought that these were anxious, obsessive thoughts, the child could be at real risk. So that chapter for me was a way to really explore the implications and the importance of the diagnostic approaches that we take. So how do you determine which is the right diagnosis? Carefully, carefully, carefully. Um, you know, in that particular case, the stakes to me felt so high. There were a number of uh, psychiatrists that were talking about this. I got supervision from um, a mentor and friend of mine, Audrey Tirka, who's a very... Um, whip smart and uh, elegant diagnostician. So she and I talked about the case at length. We had psychological testing done on this patient to make sure that we were really um, looking at this, you know, recognizing which symptoms seemed more pronounced. And and as we actually began to believe that this was, um, this was a more anxious than psychotic picture. So we proceeded really, really slowly, you know, had visits with the baby in the hospital that we could sort of observe and make sure that this was all going to plan uh, going according to plan then I talked with her at length about what that felt like we matched up her responses to typical obsessive compulsive responses and made sure that you know the the course that she was describing of feeling more and more anxious when she was with the baby you know, that's what we would expect in the same way that we might expect someone who has a germ phobia to respond if we asked them to go over and you know rub a toilet seat. So we, we really watched very, very carefully her response and we moved very slowly in the course of treatment. Um, but there's always an element of faith. And I think um, in that chapter, I talk about how Anna, that's the name that I used for that patient, I was really asking her to trust um, and have faith in the fact that she was 
a good mother who wanted the best for her child and was going to be able to care for him. And at the end of the day, I, I had to hold that same faith and trust as well. I had to trust that my colleagues and I were making the correct decisions, that we were well-founded in the decisions that we were making. And, and in some ways, it felt good and right that I had to hold the exact um, tension that I was asking Anna to hold. Do you ever get to follow up with these folks, I, I guess, to see if you made the right call? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. One of the the, the um, realities of modern day psychiatry is that many uh, patients who are extremely psychiatrically ill come back to the hospital many times. So the illnesses that we treat um, can be quite chronic illnesses. People who suffer with severe depression or bipolar illness or psychotic illnesses, these are, are illnesses that we do not have a cure for at this point in time. We can manage them, but they're not illnesses that we can cure. So, um, so often I will see patients back for repeated hospitalizations, and then I have some sense of, of how it's gone for them. Um, but Anna, as an example, is a patient that I never saw again. Um, and, and there, you know, what I choose to believe about that is, is great. You know, she's following up in outpatient care. She's doing well. I never, I certainly never saw her in the newspaper as having committed some horrific act to her child. And I take solace in that. Um, but that's an element that's, that's a challenge in the practice of, of medicine in general and psychiatry in particular is, you know, I think I, like many other clinicians, spend so much time really thinking deeply about these patients and how to best be of service to them. And then they sail off into the world and I, absolutely I wonder how they're doing. This is Science for the People and we'll be back with more of Dr. Christine Montrose, author of Falling into the Fire, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. My guest today is Dr. Christine Montross, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University, Staff Psychiatrist at the Butler Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, and author of Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. So it's possible for, for even absolute lay people to sort of understand where certain illnesses come from. Uh, the mother who has concerns about her ability to parent and becomes obsessed with the idea that she might harm her child. Uh, Self-injury stemming from trauma. Uh, those are understandable. Uh, but some conditions are, are very, very difficult for me personally to get my head around. Sure. Uh, can you explain body integrity identity disorder? 
Sure. So um, this is a chapter that I write primarily about a, re- a condition I believe is related um, called body dysmorphic disorder. Um, but they're, they're actually quite, quite different um, disorders, and I'll tell you a little bit about each. So body dysmorphic disorder is a much better studied and better understood disorder, though it still has not really received the attention it probably deserves given how prevalent we think it is in our society. Um, these are these are people who have a, a fixed false belief about their appearance. And this isn't just you or I thinking, oh, you know, my um, arms look flabby in this shirt or my hair doesn't look right. This is, is someone who has a, a, a quite, um, quite serious false belief about their appearance. So examples might include someone who believes themselves to have disfiguring acne scars, even when their skin would look perfectly normal to you or me, or someone who believes that um, their their hair is so severely thin that it's distracting to other people. And so they spend hours and hours um, and and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on products and procedures and and attempts to mask what they perceive to be this really hideous um, hair situation when you or I would pass them on the street and, and think that they looked absolutely normal. So the chapter in which I write about body integrity identity disorder is one in which I try to juxtapose that condition with body dysmorphic disorder. Um, the patient with body dysmorphic disorder who I write about is a young man who um, did have these delusional beliefs about his skin and spent tens of thousands of dollars on dermatologic procedures and plastic surgery procedures to try to fix these um, scars which were imperceptible to anyone around him. Uh, These patients with body dysmorphic disorder are never satisfied with their appearance because this belief is truly a delusional one. No matter how um, how much they do, no matter how drastic the measures are that they take, their sense of this um, defect is not ameliorated. The treatment for them is actually a psychiatric treatment. They need um, psychiatric medication and cognitive behavioral therapy and those that combination has been shown to work very, very well for that illness. In contrast, um, the other patients that we're talking about are patients who have historically had this sort of beautiful um, Greek name, apotemnophilia. So this is a condition where people have uh, a sense that they were meant to be amputees, that they were really, really meant to have um, only one leg, only one arm, no legs at all. And this, as you indicate, um, is very difficult for others of us to understand. Why on earth would you want or have this sense that your body was supposed to be less able or less complete, in fact, than it is? And what's really fascinating about these patients is they have incredibly specific ideas and very, uh, and convictions about um the shape their body is meant to have. So one person will say, my right leg is supposed to end a 
right here above my knee and they'll draw a sharp demarcation with their hand. Um, my left leg is supposed to stop just above the ankle. Um, and what differentiates these patients from body dysmorphic disorder patients are a couple of interesting things. One is um, that uh, they when they, they will similarly go to great lengths to try to quote unquote fix the problem at hand. So there are some very um, graphic kind of gruesome stories of people who have gone to great lengths to remove their limbs so that they feel as though their bodies are the shape that it, they were meant to be. In contrast to the body dysmorphic disorder patients, once that is accomplished, the patients with BIID um, feel as though their condition has been cured. They feel at ease. They feel as though their body is now in its right form, in its right shape, um, and they no longer have this persistent frustration, delusion. It doesn't shift to another body part as you sometimes see in body dysmorphic disorder. So that's very different outcomes. In my mind, um, and there are also some neurologic studies that begin to indicate that when you test these patients, um, their body, their minds do indeed respond differently to the parts of the, their bodies that they feel are meant to be there and the parts that they feel are not meant to be there. So their brain may fire in a more typical way. If, if, for example, they believe their right leg is supposed to end below the knee, when their left leg is tested with sensory um, stimuli, their brain may fire in a very, very typical way. The upper part of their right leg, their brain may fire in a typical way. And we actually see there's some evidence that there are changes in the way the brain responds and it begins to respond in an atypical way when the part of the body that the person feels is not meant to be there is stimulated. So it's a really, really interesting disorder in that sense. For me, it was incredibly interesting to write about because there are a few people who have actually had elective surgery to amputate limbs that they have felt do not belong. And as you can imagine, this raises incredible ethical questions. Um, why would we ever take off a healthy limb for someone? Well, in these cases, it ameliorates suffering. Um, so if we don't have any other way to ameliorate the suffering that these people feel as though they're enduring by having their bodies be in a shape that they do not recognize, um, are we obligated to do the one thing we can do to quote unquote cure them and perform this surgery that many of us would find sort of appalling to consider? Um, we let uh, people um, adjust and modify their bodies in all sorts of ways that we find appalling. People pierce all manner of parts and they split their tongues and they, uh, you know, it, it insert all kinds of things in their bodies. We allow that. How does this differ? Um, to me, it's an incredibly interesting question. But what about the concept of, of do no harm? If in this con, if in this context does do no harm, it, is it kind of pitting physical harm against mental harm? I think there's I think there's a uh, an absolute um, component of that. I think um, I began to think of this condition, which I should say is much, much less studied, 
much seems to be much much less prevalent than um, other psychiatric disorders is not even one that's included in the DSM at this point so we know very little about it so um, all of this is a little bit speculative but for me the descriptions um, the first person descriptions that people offer and then the relief and um, the relief of suffering that seems to occur, in the event that the limb is lost, um, there is a very um, there's a very deep resonance to me with the narratives of transgender people who have gone through transition. So this is to say, and, and in my mind, um, uh, that's a more comprehensible structure for us. That that transgender people are people whose Gender identity is very, very clear in their own minds, and yet um, no, their bodies just do not match. And in the event that there is a way that their bodies are made to match, that there is a real resolution of that sense of dis-ease um, in, in the mind. And, and I think uh, the, the, the processes seem very similar to me as, as I hear the narratives of these people who just feel as though their bodies are in the wrong shape. So then the question is, well, so are you going to, in the event of um, of this condition, this condition where people seek amputation, and here I'm, I'm definitely differentiating from transgender folks who transition from one gender to the next. Here I'm squarely talking about people who seek amputation. If this is a psychiatric problem or a neurologic problem, um, a neurologic mismatch for those who believe their leg uh, should end at the knee, are we providing a surgical response to a neurologic problem? And what are the ethics of that? And I think I kind of come down on the point of saying, look, until we have a non-surgical way to treat this suffering, if we have um, a, a surgical way that alleviates the suffering, perhaps we should entertain that possibility. I think one of the complicating factors is um, there are economic um, consequences to um, afflicting someone with a disability. Uh, you know, someone who suddenly goes from having two legs to no legs um, needs different kinds of services, different kinds of care, needs a home that's structured differently, needs a wheelchair. Who picks up those costs. Um, I just found it to be territory that was incredibly interesting. You know, as you can tell, I like to go to those places where there are lots of questions and no easy answers. Uh, and this, to me, seemed to be one of those exact types of corners. So what do you do when somebody's illness makes you incredibly uncomfortable? One of the gifts of psychiatric training is that I think we are really, uh, that a component of our training is preparedness for how to deal with these kinds of situations. I think the reality is that um, across fields of medicine, all physicians have this experience. Um, and, and I talked, I have a role at the medical school where I talk a lot to medical students about different things that are hard about being a physician. But one of them is that, you know, our lives go on in normal human ways while we're treating sick patients. So, 
your mother may have breast cancer when you happen to be treating someone who is dying of breast cancer. Those are difficult moments to navigate. You may have something um, very upsetting and stressful going on in your own life and see it reflected in the lives of your patients. Or, um, you know, you may have very ill family members and see people who um, are comparatively well, and that may be upsetting and frustrating to you. So I think one of the things that is really wonderful about psychiatric training is that it it acknowledges that, of course, this will come up. Um, I think it should be a component of all medical training because, of course, it comes up even for surgeons, but I think psychiatrists recognize that more. So one thing is that when that happens to me, I lean heavily on the training that I've received. Um, and, And a big component of that training is simple recognition um, that when I, to, to really be aware of and recognize when I'm feeling a response in myself and then take that as a cue to look at that response and try to figure out why it's going off in the way that it is. Because um, if, if we feel those feelings and don't examine them, inevitably they're going to take root and may affect adversely the way that we're able to interact with our patients and care for them. So the chapter that I wrote about Lauren, the young woman who swallowed objects, um, had a lot to do with this. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the hour, her repeated self-harm really infuriated the doctors who worked with her. And in particular, the gastroenterologists who were asked to repeatedly, um, you know, go in, pull out these objects um, laparoscopically or um, with or endoscopically, um, they were over and over doing these difficult procedures. And then often, you know, once they pulled a, a, a fork handle or a bed spring up out of her GI tract, she would go back to the hospital room and swallow something else, you know, a piece of an IV pole or part of the window frame. Um, so as a physician um, who's, try- again, trying to help, that's so frustrating to feel like you've worked really hard to help this patient and they're working against you. So that chapter was one in which I really tried to look at why it was so maddening for all of us who were caring for her. And I think it brought up a sense of helplessness in the providers. And, you know, medical students and physicians we all have a smidge of the type A personality. You know, we go into medicine and if we um, work harder in school, we get better grades. And if we study more, we do better on our board exams. And there's real, they're really, um, it's a, it's a system that's set up so that the harder you work, the better your results are. And that's a very satisfying arrangement. Well, when you have a patient, whether it's someone like Lauren or someone with a terminal disease, for example, terrible cancer, no matter how hard you work, you may find that you're not able to do better. You're not able to fix the scenario. And I think that, um, 
just like the frustration that took root in Lauren, it's also why we sometimes see really wonderful physicians abandon their patients um, when their patients start to die, that there's a real helplessness that we feel that we can't tolerate. So, um, so that's an example of something that I try to be aware of in my own practice. If I start to feel frustrated by a patient um, to really look at and see if it's just because I'm feeling like I can't do I can't, I'm feeling impotent or powerless. Sometimes patients make me feel afraid. Um, sometimes patients make me really um, sad. You know, I think as a mother, when I see either parents who have lost children or young people who are really, really struggling, um, you know, you can't help but look at them and think, um, that could easily also be my family. Um, that's, that's difficult. You're tuned into Science for the People, and I'm here with Dr. Christine Montross, author of Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking with Dr. Christine Montross about her book, Falling into the Fire. A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. An additional problem that you wrote about that I that I found very interesting, uh, just to compound all of this, is that our society seems to romanticize madness. Right. Um, there, there is definitely um, a thematic through line about how psychiatric illness and madness are these romantic, exciting, um, awe-inspiring ideas and that maybe the mad and the insane, and I use those kind of sensational words intentionally because I think they're part of this conversation. Maybe they're really the ones who know what's going on. Maybe they really have access to knowledge that the, the those of us who are comparably sane and dull do not. Um, and, and I've been in environments where this is really um, quite a loud discussion. I would never say that there's not value to the experience of mental illness. I've seen people who have made um, quite a bit of value and have used very constructively their experiences of psychiatric illness. That being said, I think it does a real disservice to those who struggle with mental illness to characterize it in this romantic way. I was the one real rant I allowed myself in the book was this conference where I was, and it was a humanities conference, and a lot of the papers that were being presented um, were about um, you know, schizophrenia being a fragmentation in the postmodern self, and all of these incredibly intellectualized ideas about psychiatric illness. And I felt like my job at the conference was just to raise my hand over and over again and say, people suffer, people suffer, people suffer. Because I feel like um, for us to stand and say, oh, Virginia Woolf's 
um, work was so wonderful because she was so depressed or, um, you know, any of Vincent van Gogh's paintings are so extraordinary because uh, he suffered in the way that he did, you know, um, to equate and, and there is absolutely truth to the fact that um, many people with psychiatric illness have created extraordinary, awe-inspiring things. What's also true is that far more people are just debilitated by psychiatric illness. And I think my voice tries to be one that says, imagine how much more Virginia Woolf might have written had she not drowned herself in the river. Imagine what we might have gotten beyond what Sylvia Plath left had she not uh, asphyxiated herself. And I think that this romantic idea that the suffering is what um, allows art to bloom loses sight of how much is lost when people are suffering from a debilitating depression and can't even shower or get dressed, let alone create some kind of masterpiece. And I think it's a privileged position for those of us who are functioning without psychiatric illness to wish this upon people so that they can make these great creations. That's an easy choice for us to make to say, well, of course, you wouldn't want to rob the you wouldn't want to cure psychiatric illness and rob the world of, of what Sylvia Plath had to say. Well, that, that's easy for us to say, but I'm not sure Sylvia Plath would have made the same choice given the fact that she had to endure um, just the excoriating depressions that she had to endure and then her life ended so young. So you're right. I do, I do have a little bit of a diatribe in this department, but it's frustrating for me when people um, romanticize what it can be such an awful experience for people to endure. Well, and does that romanticization affect how you diagnose and treat people? I think that um, there's less, I feel less permeable to that. That feels like a world that is outside the world of the psychiatric hospital in some ways to me. I feel like the patients and family members that I work with know very well the dark underbelly of mental illness. So really when you're, you know, when your child can't get out of bed and is saying that they want to die, you're, you're not extolling the virtues of mental illness. You're desperate for someone to intervene and help. Um, so I don't, I don't see that in my day to day life. I see that much more from people who I think are comfortably removed from the day to day experience of mental illness. I could definitely see, uh, that kind of perspective contributing to maybe someone who is is in the midst of uh, of a manic episode not wanting to get help. Yes, but again, I think when people are really in the throes of mania, um, not much in the outside world is influencing them one way or the other. That this is an internally driven, um, you know, this is a, a, a feeling and a sensation and a collection of symptoms that is really self-sustaining by the brain as it's out of, uh, you know, as it's off kilter. So um, in the same way that when someone is 
manic and spending incredible amounts of money gambling um, and is not able to rationally think about their family members saying you're, you're not even though you feel like you're going to win every time you're a not winning every time and b not going to win every time and you're you, you know they, they, they cannot register that rational argument in the same way i sort of doubt that they would be um equally influenced by um someone who was saying no no you know don't take your meds i think that I, I think they're not feeling like they need their medications in a way that's entirely internal um so i don't i don't know i think i think what the damage that an argument like that does do is that it becomes a part of our cultural conversation and it fuels the idea of psychiatry as sort of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, field in which um, psychiatrists are these ogres who want to stamp out divinity and difference and um, just peddle our big pharma medications and turn um, the citizenry into a compliant placid um, mass. Um, I think that, that it's much more damaging in the cultural conversation than really it truly is in the moments of of psychiatric symptomatology that people experience now before we go is is there anything else that you'd like people to know that we didn't cover because there was so much material in the book, <laughs> i could i could have this conversation with you for the next three hours yeah i think i mean i, I think i really wrote the book because, and I know some of the stories in the book sound sort of outlandish and extreme. I think going along with this idea of, um, romantic, ro you know, romanticizing the idea of mental illness, I think I really wrote the book in a, in a way to say, um, please look at the humanity of this experience. And I think to, we have a, a tendency to hold those who are psychiatrically ill really at arm's length and to say that that is not me you know over a woman who has thoughts of killing her child that's a monster that is that is nothing i can relate to that is that is no one anything like me someone who um you know is, is swallowing as scary objects absolutely not that's a foreign entity that's not a that's not something that i recognize or understand I think I really wrote the book to try to demonstrate that these are human beings who are fallible like the rest of us and that in some ways we're all vulnerable to uh, mental illness, but also that an understanding of what gives rise to these conditions can help us treat them more humanely and more effectively. I think when we look at mothers who have thoughts of harming their children and play over and over on the TV news what monsters they are and follow every um, speck of their lives in court and interview everyone that's ever known them and, and put them forth as these uncaring evil women, I think we discourage other women who have these thoughts of coming clean with it, of seeking help about it. And the reality is two thirds of women who have colicky babies have thoughts of, have explicit thoughts of harming their child. This is a normal phenomenon that people have, but no one likes to admit that. No one likes to talk about it. And if we pathologize it to such a degree and hold it in such disdain, we in in some ways allow more of these tragedies to occur because we do not say this is something that lots of women feel 
you should share this with us if you're feeling this way, and then we can help so it doesn't get to a state of emergency. But if we have said anyone who has these thoughts is a monster, um, in some ways we're perpetuating the possibility that these acts might occur because people will be afraid to seek help. So that's kind of a, a long answer to your question, but my hope in the book was really to show these complex and in some instances extreme psychiatric illnesses, um, but by doing so to underscore um, the deep and sometimes really inspiring humanity that accompanies them. Christine, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I really enjoyed the conversation. And that was Dr. Christine Montross, author of Falling into the Fire, A Psychiatrist's Encounters with the Mind in Crisis. We've linked to her on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, if you'd like to keep up to date on upcoming episodes and show news. And to iTunes, if you're interested in checking out our past episodes, subscribing to our weekly program, or leaving a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.